Citizen Jane. Yeah. You want some? I do. What, what I this? do. Hinkle Trocken. Yeah, $15 at the LCBO. All right. Case anyone. This is an endorsement. Okay, that's good. <laughs> Sponsor us. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Citizen Jane, the Citizen Kane of podcasts. I'm Veronica. I'm Dancy. And I'm Cash. This week, we're talking about Winter's Bone and Tangerine. We're going to talk about the category problems we had with these movies, but the basic link is journeys, trips, quests, odysseys, and searching for home. They are moving, they are searching for something, they're doing stuff, they're in motion. And yet, when you think about it, the heroines are in motion, but the physical distance they cover is very small. Mm -hmm. Like, they stay really local Mm -hmm. to their communities in Tangerine, like, someone takes a bus once, a couple of blocks. <laughs> it is a quest within a contained area. What I had trouble with with this pairing is labeling it. Unlike the a lot of the genre films we've been doing where it's, like, period pieces, it's, like, they do speak to each other so well, but what do you call that? And I think that's actually part of the animating force of this podcast is we wanted to get away from kind of traditional patriarchal ways of talking about art But when you get try to do that, you also run into the problem, I think, of not having the right language. Part of feminist thought is troubling those categories. So in pairing a really dark movie with a movie that's just washed in these bright yellows, greens, and oranges, maybe on the surface, they don't look like they can work together. But the task of this podcast is to wonder about the ways that they might. The first thing that came to my mind when we were thinking about them beyond just like movement was Odysseys which makes a lot of sense in many ways. The Odyssey doesn't exactly start where it ends or anything, but it's about him going home. And these movies are all about sort of going from one place back to the place that you started in in a kind of like homeward movement. But it, of course, is named after Odysseus, the hero of Homer's epic, who is a man who has to do all of these different sort of very adventurous things to get back home to his wife. So basically the issue with the wife is that if your husband is gone for long enough and you're rich and hot, all these other men are basically like laying siege to this woman's house, being like, marry me next. So her way of sort of like holding these suitors at bay, that's kind of her heroic action. And fairness to Homer, he does represent it as like a real conflict Mm -hmm. and very hard to negotiate. But we still end up in this problem, right? So we've got these two movies. We want to talk about them from a kind of feminist lens. And the only word for this kind of movement is Odyssey. We just spent like 10 minutes being like, journey, quest, (laughs) Odyssey, trip, trip, (laughs) move. Like, what do we call it? We don't know what to call it. And even quest is laden, you know, heroic quest, usually like a male hero. How do you both make it clear, like, what your ideas and terms are and, like, get like a language to discuss these things mm-hmm. and not fall into a patriarchal heteronormative white supremacist trap. Well, yeah. we will always fall into them a little bit because we can't escape yeah. How the do machine you claw that to the edges <laughs> of it. Yeah, I think in a way it's we are looking for margins in a sense in the same in a way that is maybe a kind of interesting parallel with the spaces and ways that the characters in these movies live. And both of the women who go on these quests live on the margins of society in one way, way or another. Way down in Missouri where I heard this melody. Okay, so Winter's Bone, it is about a young woman. She's 17 years old. Her name is Ree Dolly. And she lives in the backwoods of the Appalachian Mountains with her two younger siblings and her mom, who is suffering from some kind of like mental illness or something. It's, or so, it's never clear what's happened, but her mom is like incapacitated. The town and the area that the Dollies live in is run by the criminal underground and the crystal meth trade. 
and Ree's father, Jessup Dolly, is involved in that. He's a real shit dad. Like, he's clearly not around to help Ree look after the family. But what we find out right at the beginning is that Jessup Dolly has gotten arrested. In order to make bail, he's put up their house and their acres of heritage timberlands in order to make bail, and then he disappears. And so the law enforcement comes to the Dolly's house and says, like, if your dad doesn't show up for his next hearing, like, we're going to take the house. So Ree goes on a quest to find her dad. It becomes clear her dad has been killed by Thump Milton and his gang. And so after lots of kind of like small acts of heroism on her part, she ends up having her dead father's hands cut off with a chainsaw so that she can bring it to law enforcement to prove he's dead and then she gets to keep the house. All right, Tangerine is a 2015 film by Sean Baker that follows Cindy and her friend Alexandra, two transgender sex workers uh, on Christmas Eve in Hollywood. And at the beginning of the movie, Cindy finds out that Cindy's boyfriend, Chester, has been cheating on Cindy while she's been in prison for the last month-ish. Cindy gets very upset and ends up going on a quest for Chester. During this time, we are also introduced to a cab driver named Razmik, an Armenian man um, who also is a a frequent client of uh, Alexander's, and he also has a family at home. Uh, The movie culminates with Cindy after she's tracked down the cis woman that Chester has been cheating on her with, drags her in to see Chester in this donut shop they all hang out on. The cab driver, Razmik, is there as well. He's being found out as a client. These different characters are interwoven together in this final moment. Then at the very end, Cindy also finds out that her best friend, Alexandra, has also slept with Chester as well while she's been away. And in the last final moments of the movie... Cindy tries to pick up a John, and they throw urine in her face. This happens in front of Alexandra. She runs over to her, and they end up in a laundromat. And the very final scene in the laundromat is the two women sitting side by side. Do you remember earlier in this episode where we talked a little bit about the trouble of using the term odysseys? Maybe in another episode that would have been saved for the very end. But in this one, we're going to try to be a little proactive and think about those questions at the outset. What's up with this term? It's a term with a lot of baggage. Can we use it? We've talked a bit about um, the odyssey as originally this classical canonical work of literature, this Mm -hmm. epic poem centered around a man and all of his other men friends. (laughs) (laughs) um, Odysseus, the fighter in the Trojan War, trying to get home. He he and his soldiers home. Um, And I was actually noticing as I watched these films and thinking about, okay, Odysseys, um, obviously in the Odyssey, Homer... Sorry, (laughs) in the Odyssey, Odysseus... The author is dead, dead. (laughs) (laughs) In the Odyssey... Odysseus encounters all of these, like, fantastical things, um, like cyclopses, sirens, witches, they eat a bunch of, like, lotus and sleep a lot, and it's all very, like, yeah, like, it's a fantasy realm. Mm -hmm. Um, And he is in danger, but it's always the tone of, like, high adventure. And in these films, these women, are when they go on their quests... Like, a lot of what they're seeking, like, puts them in some kind of danger that isn't fun. Especially yeah. in Winter's Bone, I think. Yeah, so I have lots of thoughts about Winter's Bone as an odyssey. And what something you just said, Dance, 
really reminded me of one of my central thoughts about that, which is that you were saying, okay, so an odyssey is about a man and his man friends going on a man quest. <laughs> I think that's the technical definition. Yeah, in a nutshell. That's but in it. Winter's Bone... the cliff notes of the Odyssey. Man, man friends, man quest. All right. Maybe there's a ship. Probably you kill a, a boar. Some hot mermaid ladies. Yeah. Minimum Smoking hot wife waiting at home. Yes, and actually that's another good point. In the Odyssey, a lot of the danger is women. A lot of women, like female witches, sirens. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Monstrous, Monstrous women. women. In Winter's Bone, the Odyssey is about the absence of a man, specifically. Or the Odyssey is spurred by the fact that a man has fucked up his family life. And this happens in both. So mm-hmm. Chester has cheated on Cindy, and yeah. her Odyssey is like taking him to task for how he has wronged her. Mm-hmm. Um, and in Winter's Bone, the father has, you know, he can't come up with enough bail, so he puts his family's home and property up as, as his own bail. And so the daughter is forced to reckon with his actions. So these odysseys are spurred by the sins that men commit. Mm-hmm. And in the case of Winter's Bone, it's specifically unlike in Tangerine, where we do eventually meet Chester, who is an underwhelming love interest. <laughs> um, <laughs> at best. <laughs> at best. Understatement. <laughs> but in Winter's Bone, the, like it's about the absence of a man. Mm-hmm. Like We never meet Jessup. We see his dead hands at one point, and that's it. Mm-hmm. Um, and also... In a traditional Odyssey, and I think that Winter's Bone maps onto a kind of canonical Odyssey more clearly than does Tangerine, but like Re is heroic. She goes through a definite hero's journey. She has like a long, dark night of the soul. One of the things I like and noticed about Winter's Bone is how so many of the heroic actions don't happen in these like kind of fantastical big spaces. They happen in like really intimate everyday spaces. So Mm -hmm. like Re going to her uncle's house to ask if he's seen her father is like an incredibly tense and dangerous scene. Walking through the woods is dangerous. Like going out of her front door is dangerous. Like going the, to a cattle market. Yeah. So in my sense of a traditional odyssey is that the home is seen, and this is a simplistic thing, so like don't at me, is that like the home is the refuge to which you return. But in Winter's Bone, her home, like everything is infused with danger. Mm-hmm. Like it's not like she goes off into the world to confront the dangerous thing. Like, it's there in her life all of the time. Yes, and uh, when you speak about home, there's so many scenes where when she first meets people at their at their front doors, because she's usually going to people to interview them to try to find out where her dad is, they don't... There's always this um, hesitance, this reluctance to let her inside their house yeah. as well. Like, she, you're really made to feel like she has no safe safe zone like even yeah. even in even in a hospitality other people's houses kind of way totally and if you think about the structure of Odysseus and Penelope Odysseus is partly able to go on this odyssey because Penelope is holding down the home base but Rhea is doing both like she's both on the quest and she's the one trying to hold down the home yeah that one the um the redheaded woman when Rhea comes to her house she says don't you have any men to do this for you. Mm-hmm. Right. But Re collapses Penelope and Odysseus. And Re's home is full of a lot of danger, but the opening scenes also establish that, that this home is precious to her. Home is associated with a place for her 
her siblings to grow up. I mm-hmm. almost said her children, because that's kind of what yeah. they are. Yeah. She's their caregiver. But also the home is associated, like we see one of the siblings hold up a, a newborn kitten. The home itself looks really interesting. It's a log cabin. Like there are all these images in Winter's Bone that kind of speak to traditional American idea, like dreams. There's a log cabin. She has a horse. They have this nature behind them, but they're twisted. So she has this log cabin and you're right, Ronnie, it is a space of refuge. But there's also, like, garbage all over the place. Mm-hmm. It's not structured very well. If they you sleep, look, but they don't have enough beds. They don't have beds. You can see that the back of the house, the foundation is collapsing a little bit. Mm-hmm. And she says at one point, I think when she's appealing to Thump Milton's woman, she says, like, I've got my mom and two kids, and I can't carry them without that house. It's not just her safe place, but we also come to understand. It's also her backup plan because she can sell the house, and if she needs to, and if Shelly doesn't want to, she could sell the Timberlands as a kind of last ditch. They have nothing else. They can sell this. Mm -hmm. So home can mean a lot of things in Winter's Bone. It can be a place where you, like, love your family, and you kind of see those family values reflected in the relationship with the land and the trees and the animals. Yeah. But it's also a place where you have to do a ton of work, and it's a place where if if, you know, bad turns to worse, you will be able to sell it and get liquid assets Mm -hmm. when you need it. So home is a safety net and a danger zone. And yet all of that that you just said, also all the safety parts of it only count if you do own it, which we know that she doesn't because her dad was able to sell it or to put it up for bail. Yeah, it's in her dad's Um, name. So it's this, it's this, she's the one who functionally uses it, who is the head of the household, who is the caretaker, who is like doing all these traditionally male jobs. And even though she's in all in those positions, she has none of that none of that power. She has none of the ability, and her dad can simply pull it out from under her. Yeah, she mm-hmm. has all the responsibility without the authority. Mm-hmm. And the movie is partially about her staking this claim to authority, not because she feels like it is her empowerment task to do so, but because she has to. I think that's what the quest becomes about, you know? It's such a powerful and fucked up image at the end of her, like, cutting her dad's hands off. I guess she doesn't actually do the cutting, but, like... Holding it while it's yeah. chainsawed It's off. an absolute... It's, like, nightmare fuel. It's the part of the hero's journey where it's, like, the hero loses all hope. Frodo at the edge of the cliff being like, <laughs> I can't do it, you mm-hmm. know? Mm-hmm. Or, like, literally confronting the weight of your inheritance. Yeah. And needing to cut that off at the wrist. Yeah. Throughout the movie, she's quite stoic. Yeah. And this is, like, one of two scenes where you really see her upset yeah mm-hmm. and even when you see her break down in that scene you don't actually hear it so you see her mouth open and her face contort you don't know if it's a silent scream yeah. or like there's some kind of breakdown happen but even then we are separated mm-hmm. from it a little bit mm-hmm. do you know what her Julie, jennifer lawrence's performance reminds me of in this movie is um heath ledger in brokeback mountain he said in the, in an interview about that movie that he played that character like a clenched fist. Yes. Like yeah. That was his yeah. metaphor for explaining his performance. Yeah. And rewatching clips of it, I was like, this, like, re is a clenched mm-hmm. fist. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This scene of tremendous reckoning mm-hmm. with inheritance, fate, whatever you want to call it, it's a scene dominated by women. Yeah. So it, it almost reminded me of the three fates in classical mythology are women. The famous thing that they do is that they hold up a thread mm. and you have to cut it off. And there's a similar oh scene God. of cutting. I didn't even think of that, Ronnie. That's right? blowing my mind. <laughs> <laughs> I did a classical civilization minor, which is the kind of minor that U of T offers if you don't want to learn Latin or Greek. <laughs> it really came through for me today. In, let's say, the traditional Odyssey, the motivation is to get back home. But in Winter's Bone, 
the motivation is to preserve home, is mm -hmm. to keep it, is not to become homeless. Well, it destabilizes the idea that home is something that you can return to at all. Like it really yes. just breaks that trope in half. In the Odyssey, on the surface, it seems to be about a single person. But if we think about it, it's not. It's actually a collective. Like he has all the sailors. He has Penelope. It's about him being a good leader. Yeah, it's about him well. being a good leader. But it's not just about individual heroism. It's about a team that doesn't get the credit. But in Winter's Bone, it actually is about one person mm -hmm. having to do this. And we see how fucking scary and hard that is. Yeah. The link that I can think to Tangerine and Home, and it's thin because it's like the home, the real home in Tangerine is the donut store, donut time, uh, or possibly Rasmick's home, home life. We are given sort of view, like peeks into... Uh, Christmas Eve at his house with his mother-in-law, his wife, his daughter, and some other family members. Uh, but other than that, these women, uh, Alexandra and Cindy, we you so it starts in the afternoon, kind of late afternoon. It's like very like an orange glow. It's almost the golden hour. It goes all is it tangerine colored. It is tangerine colored. <laughs> it goes all the way into sort of the early hours of the next morning. We never see them go home anywhere. I think that in Tangerine, the home is not actually a physical place. The relationship between Alexandra and Cindy becomes the kind of like emotional home. So there is a return, right? Like we start with a scene of friendship with them and we end with a scene of friendship between these two women. I really like what you said there about the emotion. Like that is like the center and that's like the home emotion. Mm -hmm. But I do think it's important that they don't have a physical home. I do that think like, it is too, yeah. That their, their community, which we are shown, and their emotional connection is to be lauded. But it is also, we're very acutely aware that they, they don't have a like a stable place. Re has property, but no community. Yeah, very And true. these two women have community, but no property. The absence of one or the other says something about how the idea of the Odyssey is being reworked to mm -hmm. fit the needs of these characters. Yeah, and not even to fit the needs. Like, we are coming up short with language here, and like, it's just like something else, but what it like resembles is an Odyssey. What what's the closest we get to homes, like physical spaces of home in the movie? Donut time, I think. We also get that really awful scene at the end with the cisgendered woman, but she has been working and living in this kind of series of interconnected oh God, hotel yeah. rooms that's like a real shit brothel. And after Cindy has like captured her from this brothel, taken her on a wild ride through Hollywood, and then sent her home with one shoe. She goes back and she's barred. She can't go inside. Because they, she's, she's been replaced. She's been replaced And actually, even when we first enter that brothel, Cindy bursts in. There's just a regular sort of motel bed. There's a woman there and a naked man. Uh, and you think, okay, that's the, that's it. Uh, and then there's another room, another door she opens. And, and there's a there's another There's another bedroom where people are having sex. And then she goes in the bathroom and there's a woman you first see in the bathroom in the bathtub. And then there's also someone in the shower. So it's this whole sort of one shot sequence where you go further and further in and you, you're sort of made to feel like, oh my God, there are so many people in this small hotel room. Yeah. Motel room, really. There's like ten, eight or 10 people in like two rooms in a bathroom. Yeah. Many of them are having sex. Yeah, which just makes clear in a really horrifying way that like the closest thing Dinah gets to a home is like a home when you're when you're doing sex work yes so if right. she's not doing work she's not allowed inside yeah like, where does this girl sleep exactly so it's not a home it's just an enclosed space mm -hmm. yeah 
The taxi driver might be an interesting figure yes. here because mm-hmm. he does have a home, but he like pays for sex work. And that is something that his wife kind of knows and mm-hmm. turns a blind eye to. And his mother-in-law has, has visited for Christmas and she makes it her mission to show her daughter, Rasmick's wife, what her husband is doing. So you get the sense that his home, which is this apartment, doesn't really feel like a home because there's so many secrets. The movie really does look unflinchingly at Rasmick as someone who has the sexuality that doesn't fit within this kind of traditional Armenian home. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also his sexuality is something like the movie doesn't judge, period. But the ramifications of that sexuality for his like home and his wife and his child, mm-hmm. um, I think that the movie like wants to look at and and think about without like parceling that up into like being a totally immoral act. No, definitely that was very not. Bad and it also doesn't it. like package it up as like a Hallmark movie with a clear moral in any particular direction. Oh, yeah. It's just like an extremely complicated situation. Yeah. And you're sort of left to deal with that as a yeah. viewer. Um, what do we think about his apartment? Comparative to a lot of the other scenes or sorry, sites that we get throughout Tangerine, it seems it's more well off. He's like, he's like, Established, they have furniture, but he's like a working class yeah, family. Yeah, yeah, but it's a little empty. Um, there's a scene where they have a dog, and the dog pads across, and you can just kind of like feel the dog's paw, um, paws like echoing. I also think it's important that we never see his bedroom, mm-hmm. which is like the true intimate space of a house. Yeah. yeah, there's actually a really evocative scene where he's about to go back out to find Cindy, who he's a big crush on. Um, And he's sitting in this chair by his Christmas tree, which is lit up and there are presents under it. And we have more than one shot of, he's sitting in kind of the dark. And we see through a doorway where his wife has taken their daughter, presumably to go to bed, um, that the light is on. But we don't go in there. We Mm -hmm. stay with Rasmic in the dark and then he goes back out. So we don't, it's like he too is barred from like the true warmth and intimacy of his own home. It doesn't feel very inviting, which is ironic because they they have guests over. And I also think the color palette is different than the rest of the film, which is a little more neon. Yeah, his movie. It's really dark. So how does his apartment compare to his taxi cab? Because we see him in the cab for way longer. That seems to be in other places where he feels... Well, calm. his cab is obviously permeable. <laughs> is it transitory? <laughs> that is his job. <laughs> but... We, for the beginning of the movie, actually the whole movie kind of cuts between him, Alexandra, and Cindy and their various um, wanderings throughout L.A. And for the beginning part of the movie where we see him, where we actually just see a bunch of his customers. Um, some of them are look a little sad. Some of them are drunk. One of them vomits in the cabin for the rest of the day. It smells really bad. And he's just kind of stuck in it. He has to take whatever, whatever, you know, fare comes his way. Mm-hmm. And at the beginning, you kind of, at least I kind of thought, oh, okay, this is a kind of mosaic of LA life with these people. But it begins to feel more and more like his prison almost, right? Yes. Yeah. And just sort of looping back into the odyssey aspect. I think what, as you were talking about with Winter's Bone, Re is this individual. And in Tangerine, I, th- I don't think Rasmic is a part of the quest. Mm-mm. Alexandra has a quest and Cindy also has a quest. Mm-hmm. Cindy wants to find Chester. Alexandra wants to get people to her show that night. We start with this kind of declaration of different journeys. Like Cindy wants this, Alexandra wants this. 
as it kind of progresses, we're like, I guess this is what Rasmic wants. <laughs> um, Jury's out. Right, but it ends with something that was not the kind of initial stated journey. It ends with, like, it ends with friendship, guys. <laughs> <laughs> it's another, like, helpful distinguisher. Tangerine's multi-character, multi-quest narrative is also telling us something that we maybe take for granted in a regular quest narrative, which mm. is that it's about one person. Mm-hmm. Like one yeah. person takes center stage, one yeah. person's journey matters the most. Yeah. And by having this cast and multiple different little quests and narratives, Tangerine is also insisting on a multiplicity rather than an individual. It's also drawing on a, a, a generic form that isn't a quest, but a comedy of errors. Yeah. So we have all these characters with, with different goals, but these goals are going to intersect and they will all end up in one place at the end for this farcical yeah. scene of coming together. I think Odysseys fit really easily onto Winter's Bone and Winter's Bone does really interesting things like collapse Penelope and Odysseus and show you how hard it is to carry those two roles. And the idea of having a home to return to is thrown into question. Tangerine is doing things differently. That one might be harder well, to wrap up. I feel like, so Winter's Bone gives her what she was questing for. That's why I think it tracks on to Odysseus. Um, so yes, even though like we are seeing the, we see the danger and like the precarity of having a home and, and ownership and things like that, it is still through hardship. She gets it. Yeah. And I think Tangerine, we know from the very beginning, she's not meant to get it. Um, and that the film is more interested less in the, in the questing, I think, and, and more in the Odyssey, the actual journey and like, investigating these these people whose lives are continually about movement because they don't really have like a home to return to a place to go. Mm-hmm. So maybe this actually connects well with margins, as you said. Mm-hmm. Although I do think it's worth noting that like, I think we're maybe assuming Cindy and Alexandra are homeless, but we don't actually know that for sure. We don't know, but I don't necessarily mean to imply that they are or aren't homeless. I mean that as a sex worker, you are constantly moving yeah uh, as a cab driver you are constantly moving mm-hmm. um, uh, one of the first lines in the movie is this is about our hustle yes and the oh, movie yeah. takes that hustle mm-hmm. as it's like i wrote it down interest. out here it is all about our hustle mm-hmm. exactly and then it's immediately followed by such a hilarious joke in the parking lot where someone offers cindy some weed and she says i don't do downers bitch i'm an uppers hoe i'm an uppers hoe. <laughs> <laughs> boy is she um, and that's kind of like the mission statement of the movie you know this movie is about people that in another director or scriptwriter's hands would turn into, you know, Kate Winslet as a transgender mm-hmm. sex worker. And it's kind of like, all right, this is Oscar bait. It's really deciding that this person's life is only defined by tragedy and sadness. Yes. Whereas this movie's kind of more of an upper's hoe. Like it doesn't completely. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like it. I think yeah. that there's a reason yeah. why we have this sort of metaphor at the outset. Like yeah. Tangerine is washed in bright colors and it's about how complicated life can be. But it, there is this like, really strong and beautiful friendship, and that's reflected in the way that it's shot. Girl, calm the fuck down, it's not that serious. I will go with you under one condition. You must promise me that there's not gonna be any drama. I promise, I promise. Look at me in my eyes and promise. I promise no drama. Now we're gonna talk about tone in Tangerine and Winter's Bone. These movies really don't seem to be tonally similar, so we're gonna take that head on. Uh, Reflected even in their titles, right? Winter's Bone. Mm. Tangerine. Yeah. <laughs> Winter's Bone, I picture what the movie's palette is. Sort mm-hmm. of blue, grays, icy, kind of dra- a little drained of color. And Tangerine is exploding with color and, yeah. and vibrant and neon and saturated and all this. Tangerine has this like joyful energy to it. Like it's so like effervescent and like it's very sad in some moments, but it's mm-hmm. also like 
it's not a sad movie. It's not at all like sadness porn. It's, it's also not funny. a like laugh because you can't cry movie either. No. Mm. It's really, and it's not bittersweet. It's very hard to pin down its, its, and it's tone. And so I'm glad we're talking about it this way because it is hilarious and realistic and fantastical also it's kind of like a mishmash of all these things it doesn't really try and like over determine its its ideas or its like yeah. style and it has a mix both of some moments where like the editing suggests a kind of comedic timing and you laugh and you're kind of laughing at the characters because they do silly, silly things but also a lot of time like you laugh with the characters because they made good jokes oh man mm-hmm. It doesn't mm-hmm. treat these women's lives as problems to be solved. No. I think. It treats them as a state of being. Yeah. And just takes them at that, as opposed to being like, you should feel bad or sad about this. Instead of like overlaying a particular genre or storyline onto these women, it's kind of just like, here's a day in the life. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And here's what happened. Yeah. Which is a lot of things. A lot of things. <laughs> Extremely energetic as a movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh yeah. Like there's a new music cue coming in like every 20 seconds. Like I started taking notes about the music and then I stopped because the music kept changing. Mm-hmm. Like there's a whole scene where there's some classical music and I wrote down, oh, the music's getting really quest-like here. Mm-hmm. And then it turns into pop, then it turns into electronica and trap. Like, and uh, like, old Hollywood torch songs. Like, yeah. it just, it's all over the place. Mm-hmm. It's a real, like, joyful pastiche. Yeah, that that's a great, that is a great way of putting its tone. And Winter's Bone, I think, is overlaid with a genre, which is a kind of noir, right? The Winter's Bone um, book and also this film is like a prime example of a subgenre called Appalachian noir, a kind of burgeoning field in American literature that takes like the tropes of noir literature and the noir genre and applies them to the backwoods of the Appalachian Mountains and the Ozarks. It's a detective story in a lot of senses. Everyone Mm -hmm. that she meets is kind of like shady or like hiding a secret or a little ominous. And like noir, there's, there's an investment in like the underworld, double lives and secrets and things not being said. You were talking about at the beginning how the sort of moments in her quest that kind of, again, if we think of like Odysseus's journey, like the kind of like episodic points that he goes to, that hers, that Rees are all mundane. Um, I think the one exception to that, or like one moment of like not mundane, mm-hmm. <laughs> is when she she's tracked down her father's kind of old flame. When she enters into that house, the camera lingers on this circle of people playing music. And it's a kind of otherworldly. The color palette is very warm. Yeah, suddenly it's warm. we're in this like warm space. Yes, and nothing. It doesn't really go anywhere. At the very end of the movie, Teardrop comes to see the dollies and retries to give Teardrop her dad's old banjo, and says like, "You used to be so good at this." And he kind of picks it up and has a like, "Ah, oh, shucks, I haven't done this in a long time." Moment, and you have this brief sense that like, and Re says something to this effect, although I didn't write down what she says. That before. Jessup and Teardrop got into crystal meth, their lives were more like Mm -hmm. his ex-girl, like that party. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And when she goes to her dad's closet, like there are cowboy boots and there's the banjo, like there are all these kind of trappings of a previous happy life that have been washed out by the drugs. When you see her in that party, it's a glimpse of like an alternate future. Yeah, one of the questions I had about like tone and maybe was could Winter's Bone take place in Tangerine's world and Mm -hmm. vice versa. And initially I thought, I can definitely see a version of Tangerine that takes place in Winter's Bones color palette or like interest in in the dark and the gritty and the almost devoid of hope. 
And I think we've seen versions of that movie a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And I was going to say, like, there is no world in which I could see Winter's Bone taking place in Tangerine's world. But that scene with, with the musicians almost makes me question that. Like, the movie almost holds that out to you as yes. an option for Rhee to pursue. Yeah, and I think it suggests that, like, it's not that where Rhee lives is, like, fated to be this kind of violent hellscape. There's this other way of living in the same location yeah. that is much more kind of vibrant and community-oriented. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that glimpse is really, like, the doorway into Tangerine. This is a really small point, but the other really obvious thing is, like, Tangerine is very about living in a city, living in LA, yeah. and Winter's Bone is very about living in, like, a remote area. Yeah, and <laughs> yeah, I... That's, that's all I gotta say about that. No, but, I, I mean, but I actually think that those contexts are important, right? Because yeah. Winter's Bone is about solitude in a lot yes. of ways. When uh, Cindy goes looking for Chester... People are kind of like, oh, you could try here or here or here or there. She knows maybe, everyone. Maybe. Yeah, she like, talks to everybody yeah. on the street. And Rhi has so much trouble like getting anyone to tell her anything about where her father might have been or was last seen. Right, mm-hmm. which is especially frustrating because there's only like four places he could be. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It also strikes me that that country-city divide also plays out in the layers between accessing someone in their information. Yeah. So Rhi is constantly at doorways and at thresholds yeah. asking to be let in, whereas... Cindy can just like Stop really in. get in people's face because yeah. they're just on the road. There's like there's no boundary yeah. there, and she mm-hmm. really takes the thing. We use an Alexandra. <laughs> <laughs> Merry Christmas, bitch. <laughs> the last thing we wanted to talk about was the idea of the margin, and on some level, of course, these characters are marginalized in the kind of traditional sense, like they're underprivileged, they are marginalized from mainstream society. But they also live in the margins and move through the margins of the world in ways that I find really interesting. The central world of the films in being like investig in like not even investigating in like living in like what the margins are, the mainstream becomes what's othered. Yeah, I'm mm. glad you said that because the margin is always sort of othered or made otherwise. Yeah. But one thing that I really like about these movies is that the margin is where you live and that makes it not the margin anymore. Yes. Yeah. And I think that kind of plays out in um, both movies in a sense. There's a scene or two with law enforcement. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the law enforcement is othered in both of them. Like the law enforcement is treated as the outside force that doesn't really get what's going on. Yeah, so in Tangerine, there's only one brief scene with law enforcement right after Alexandra has a, a John who won't, won't pay her. We see these two cops. They see her sort of demanding the man for her money. And they call her by her dead name, and they're kind of like, this again. They also misgender her. This is about 25 minutes in, I think. So we are like really, we are really immersed in these characters and her as a character. Mm-hmm. And so to like have this kind of like jolt you out of it, it, it feels very echo of that violence. It disrupts the narrative, it disrupts her narrative, it disrupts all of those things. That's the way the movie looks at the, the dangers these women are in without making that danger titillating or like sexy or anything like that. Or centering yeah. it. Yeah. Like dealing with cops is part yeah. of life. In Winter's Bone, we have two different levels of encounters with law enforcement. One is with military, where the man is very kind to read, but even though he recognizes the situation she's in, doesn't actually like offer her a way out. Before we started recording, we were talking about, oh, it's weird that like, Winter's Bone is kind of critical of local law enforcement, but seems to kind of show us this really kind... Army guy. But I thought about it a bit, and here's my thought. Let me know what you think. I actually think this applies to Tangerine 2, which is that in both films, law enforcement 
is not equipped to deal with the complexities and violence of the underworld. Like, so, it can punish it, but it can't deal with it. Yeah, it you know can't I mean? actually deal with it. So we have this kind military guy, but he doesn't actually offer her a solution. Yeah. And then he leaves, yeah. whereas the police guy is just around. Like, he can't leave. He doesn't fix anything. Mm-hmm. And then in Tangerine, the police can, like, see what's going on, but they can't fix it. Yeah, yeah like, what they say is, like, it's Christmas Eve. Every, just, like, just go your separate we're ways. We're not going to charge either yeah. of you, and that that's even, right? Like, exactly. not really. She's yeah. out 40 bucks. Yeah. yeah. I love that scene with the army guy. What he says is wonderful in, in Winter's Bone. The specific thing he says is it takes a lot of backbone and a lot of courage to stay home. On one level, I'm like, oh, yeah, that's so sweet. On another, I'm like, is that enough to say? Like, does that right. help her in any way? Does that? And the police guy comes off cross worse. But I was thinking, and I was like, right, but he also doesn't get to, like, jet out like the military yeah. guy does. He has yeah. to, like, stay there and deal with, like, Thump Milton and yeah. Teardrop and... But one thing it suggests about the military is that the military is not a real choice you make because you have lots of options. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The military will fund your university. Yeah. It will give you money. That's it's true. Because Re thinks about it as a way to save her family. So the military is like, if you've got nothing, you can join the military. Mm-hmm. And it's important, I guess, that that choice you make sucks. You move one kind of violence to engage in a completely different and equally bad kind of violence. Mm-hmm. Like, it's like a rigged race. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're in a maze. Like, you can't really get out. So. Yeah. Like, her one join the military was one thing. It was just seeing, like, the most benevolent Yeah, character. like, the best adult in the movie. Yeah, especially yeah. in contrast to the police officer who was really maligned. So it sounds like right now you need to buckle up and stay home. It's going to take a lot of backbone and a lot of courage to stay home, but that, I think, is what you need to do. So instead of categories this time, we're just going to do, like, a hit list of... Or stuff we liked. Stuff, stuff we, we liked. liked. But with the, like, badass moments. My, okay, the one first thing that comes to my mind, even though Dinah slash Dana is, like, not, I mean, we that's just a love, it's just your favorite in the movie, Tangerine, but um, there's a scene where Cindy is singing, say my name, say my name, and she, Dana just goes, yeah, you're the one I threw out. Which <laughs> <laughs> is so good. I loved it. Mine is, um... In Winter's Bone, after the cop has backed down from the encounter mm. with Teardrop and Ree, the next day she goes into his office, I think, to take him her dad's hands. Yes, or in the bag. Like I think that's what she is. So she gives yeah. them to him, and as she's walking out, the cop says, like, hey, you know, I just want, the only reason I didn't, uh, the only reason I backed down is because you were in the car, and I, you know, I just didn't want you to think. And she kind of leans halfway back in the door and looks over her shoulder and says, I don't think about you at all, man. And walks out. And I was just like, oh, fucking devastating. Yeah, Yeah, a little 17-year-old girl just dumped you. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I have one from each in Winter's Bone. It's a similar interaction with the cop. It's in the first couple minutes of the movie when he comes by and he's like, you know... I, like, want to come into your house and have questions for you about your dad. And she's like, do you have proof? Like, do you have a warrant? Do you yeah. have this and that? And what she says is, you need to prove it every time. Mm-hmm. She reminds him of the law. Yeah. yeah. And I, like, yeah. really like that. Mm-hmm. It's really good. And the bit from Tangerine is um, when Alexandra is aggressively making people come to her show with a yeah. confidence that I have for none of my own endeavors. <laughs> uh, yeah, there's also a moment where she goes to give the flyers to someone and they say, oh, yeah, you've been putting those out, like, a lot. We've seen them. Yeah, great job, Alexandra. <laughs> really good. So do we want to conclude with our thinking about maybe some of the limitations of the choices we made? I mean, I think the big one for me in terms of the Odyssey section still is like 
like how do we talk about these things without making them merely aberrations of the norm or mm-hmm. divergences from the norm mm-hmm. and actually i think tangerine does such a great job of doing that yeah. <laughs> like yeah. it has all these these genre nods but then it's just its own it's its own thing right that is difficult to do and i want to keep trying to discuss things on their own terms while still acknowledging that like there are no words for some things i think mine is and i'm when we're talking about odysseys and trying to compare like we just didn't really talk about race or sexuality or like Mm -hmm. the change between the fact that re is like a cisgendered white woman and like how that might change the nature of the odyssey she's able to have yeah it might be good to just have it on the record now by saying that i think one of the reasons why re can be both Odysseus and Penelope in a 21st century movie is because like second wave feminism has made it so. The way she occupies this gendered male genre is something that second wave feminism has done for a really long time. So she's drawing on a particular history of like women taking male roles in literature and how that changes the genre. Mm -hmm. I think Tangerine represents, it presents like more problems like you were saying where we might just be looking at a different genre. entirely like it centering that kind of identity changes the odyssey so massively because a a transgender woman and her relationship to home and mobility is so so different Mm -hmm. from Mm -hmm. what we get in the odyssey that it almost feels like are we devaluing all of the new things we get in tangerine by forcing it back into this Mm -hmm. older genre i think there are there you know is art out there that wants to say like look like transgender woman can have an odyssey and that that is okay with placing it in that pantheon Mm. i am not necessarily i don't think tangerine is but i can see that that is like i think you get different things with those approaches right exactly you get these really strong reproaches to what's come before and these necessary adaptations but with tangerine it's almost sort of like can't live in the master's house use the master's tools exactly i had one more thought i wanted to share just about the kind of problems of not talking about race and um, and gender identity, which is, I was thinking, not before, but like literally just now, great. Mm-hmm. But I was thinking of the Tanahisi Coates article, The Case for Reparation. There's a long section in that article about property and about how difficult it is to raise yourself into stability, like financial stability, without a property base. Mm-hmm. And thinking about that in terms of Winter's Bone, I think is really key. How does she have this house? Like, this is a desperately poor family. The fact that they have that can't, on some level, like, or from, like, looking at it from one point of view, is a product of racism in America. Yeah, it's a very white world. I remember thinking that as well. Does this conclude season one of Citizen Jane? It does. Oh my gosh. What a treat. I love you both the most. This was very fun. Very fun. Viewers, this was fun for listeners, me. take you or leave you. Mostly I'm here for these ladies. <laughs> but I'm here for snacks. Cool. Next season, we're doing a fun thing. There is going to be a season two because we had too many ideas. Rom-com. Rom-com. We had so much fun with the sort of like cross section of Nancy Myers and... Uh, period dramas uh-huh. that we thought we've resisted the siren song of the rom-com yes. for too long. Yes. So we just have to take it Too long has so remained ignored. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to dedicate an entire season to rom-coms. Each episode is going to take on a kind of trope of rom-coms or a certain kind of rom-coms. So you can look forward to ro- things like high school rom-coms, high school rom-coms, rom-coms with makeovers, rom-coms that center on a man rather than a woman. 
cross-dressing rom-coms. Rom-coms with women over 50. That's become a really prevalent Historical rom-coms? Fake dating rom-coms? I don't, we can't even do all these There's, in season, but like... I mean, it's only oh going to be God, four. I want to do them all. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, thank you for listening to season one of Citizen Jane. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. Okay, goodbye now. Bye. Thanks, bye.